0: Well, once again, it's wonderful to see everybody here this morning to be a family of faith in the Lord Jesus together. It's just a great privilege to be a part of the body of Christ. Well, um, for those of you who are able to attend at 9 a.m., we went through kind of an emergency action and response plan that's um, has more feels like more relevant given the tragedies of late in Nashville a few weeks ago, and then just the horrific event that happened in Allen yesterday, and um, it just seems like our country is, is at a more fractured place than ever. It seems like the church is under assault in new and more intense ways, and what is our hope in the midst of this? Where do we turn? To whom are we looking? I had a member this week, send me an article, a national article that was um, talking about the lack of growth or even the shrinkage of the mainline churches in the United States. And the article highlighted the denomination from which we came, the Presbyterian Church USA. And there were some staggering statistics in this article. The article indicated that just this past year, the PCUSA lost more than 56,000 members and over 100 churches just in the past year. These were former brothers and sisters that we had spent hundreds of years with, and their denomination is shrinking and waning. In the year 2000, the PCUSA had over 2.5 million members this past year at the end of the survey. Can you guess how many members they have now? Just over a million. It shrunk by more than half in 22 years. And before we place too much focus on our brothers and sisters in the USA, PCUSA, the evangelical church is facing significant challenges. I found some more statistics that frankly are hard to believe. Did you know that 33% of self-identified evangelicals, 33% of self-identified evangelicals never attend church. I'm not talking about mainline Christianity or what we might describe as liberal Christianity. 33% of self-described evangelicals don't attend church anymore. And maybe this is most stunning of all, What percentage would you say of self-identified evangelicals who indicate they go to church regularly? And by regularly, that means two times a month. What percentage of American evangelicals would you say indicate they go to church regularly? It has dropped to 24% of evangelicals who indicate that they regularly attend church church that is stunning would you not agree it's hard to even believe those statistics are real that truth was kind of reinforced a few of us had the privilege of going to La Paz to our sister church down in the Baja Peninsula in Mexico Um, an amazing congregation for those of you who remember Peter and Jenny bowling do you remember them who came this past fall And God, by his grace, allowed us to hear about this new church plant in La Paz. La Paz is 90% Roman Catholic. And of that 90%, the vast majority are cultural Catholics. So there's this gorgeous Roman Catholic church in the center of the city in La Paz. Beautiful church. Not very large by our standards, So in our three days there, guess how many churches we saw, driving around the city, checking it out, guess how many churches we saw over three days outside of that one Catholic church? Zero. Zero churches that we rode or passed by in three days. It's it's almost the spiritual equivalent in South America of Japan and the spiritual darkness there. And so good things are happening at our sister congregation that we've kind of adopted and love on. They've gone from 30 to 60 in a year. But as we were sitting there, I was thinking, La Paz, it has 250,000 people. It feels so intimidating to try to plant a church in such a spiritually dark and dry area with the meager resources there. What hope do we have to do this? The hope we have is found in the book of Revelation. We're going to get an inspiring, an amazing, majestic picture of the head and king of his church, the Lord Jesus, who appears to John while he's on the island of Patmos, you know, dealing with his own difficulties and duress, we're going to get a picture of who it is who stands behind his church and will always ensure the health and continuance of the church, regardless of the obstacle or difficulty. That's the hope for La Paz, and that's the hope for our church. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning... I don't know if this is wise or or a bit foolhardy to try to preach through the book of Revelation. We will not do a deep dive into every chapter, but Lord willing, it will be a thorough overview of this often overlooked and intimidating book. Beloved, our scripture reading comes from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God, words for you and words for me. The revelation, the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits With the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account him even so amen I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty I John your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom And to Laodicea. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, we won't spend much time talking about um, the genre and approach to the book. Much ink has been spilt on how to understand the book of Revelation. Perhaps you've been in sermon series before. Bible studies, perhaps you've read commentaries, looked in your study Bible, what in the world are we to do with this book? A book that not even the great and amazing John Calvin dared to write a commentary on. There are people that speculate as to why John Calvin chose not to write a commentary on the book of Revelation. It's not because he was done writing, because after he finished his commentary on the New Testament, I think he lived another either seven or nine years writing, reading, talking, but did not choose to write a commentary on the book of Revelation. We don't have a quote from him as to why. After preparing for this, I think I have an idea, perhaps, as to why. Some people approach Revelation almost like a, like a code book for future events that you can read through it, and that it's like a a, a logical, linear, chronological, prophetic code book of events to come in the future. Some people view it as to be relegated to the future before Jesus comes again. Believe it or not, some people think it's all already happened. I know that's shocking. That's called preterism. They think the book has already happened. I'm biased, but I think the Reformed tradition has perhaps the best and most helpful understanding of the book, of how to approach it and interpret it. We call it a view, it would be a view that some people term, it's called idealism, where there are these spiritual themes that are recapitulated over and over and over in the book. For example, the end of the world comes seven different times. You see different perspective, different scenes on how God is working in and through his church over time. It's not describing specific events, but spiritual principles and symbolic scenes that are true in every age. You're going to see lots of symbol, lots of numbers that mean things. Like this morning, you'll see the word seven repeated over and over again. Seven spirits, seven lampstands, seven stars. Seven is the number of fullness of completion. And we'll see that. So this book is written and addressed to seven specific churches of John's day. There were more churches then. John heard that the Lord was choosing seven. Why did the Lord choose seven churches to whom this letter would be written? Because those church represented the fullness of the church. The fullness of the church in John's day and in our own. So these letters weren't just for that time at the end of the first century. They're also for us. Let's look briefly. We're gonna kind of work our way through the text. Verses one through three. The revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what we call apocalyptic literature. It was a well-known genre in John's day. The book of Daniel is written in many ways in this apocalyptic format, highly symbolical, okay, with lots of different visions and pictures and images. Revelation means the revealing of things. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, to show his servants the things that must soon take place and begin to unfold. He made it known by sending his angel. There is this angel communicating this vision to who? To John. Who's John? John is the beloved disciple. Peter, James, and John. The inner three. The John who wrote what? The Gospel of John. The Epistles of John. John is on the Isle of Patmos at the end of his life. He's at what we would call, um, it's like an ancient concentration camp, if you will, a Roman penal colony for political prisoners. That's where John receives this vision. From what I understand, I've not been there. If you were to go to the Isle of Patmos, they have an idea, perhaps, of the cave where John received this vision. Verse 2, it says, he bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So John is communicating this. He's going to write it down as he's instructed. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. John is writing this in approximately 95 AD. This is it. This is the last communication of God Almighty to his church. The book of Malachi, remember the book of Malachi? That's the last book of the Old Testament. After that, approximately 400 years of silence. When the last word of Revelation was penned, that is God's final word to his church, and there could not be a better word. I can tell you the message of Revelation with complete simplicity. Do you want to know what it is? you'll totally understand the book of Revelation God wins regardless of all that is said and done there is one message of this book that you can take to the bank God through the person of his son Jesus Christ will win he will subdue all of his and our enemies and he will vindicate his church this is an amazing book And that's what it teaches. Look at verses 4 and 5. John, again, the the number 7. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Modern day Turkey. He chose, the Lord chose seven churches that this letter would be dispatched to. It would be a circular letter. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now notice the Trinitarian formula. This is from the triune God. Grace to you and peace from, this is God the Father, from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's hearkening back to the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Exodus, God's revelation of himself. How did God reveal himself to Moses? What did he say? I am Who I am. I am the one who was, and who is, and who is to come. And then we see, it's from the seven spirits who are before his throne. What is the seven spirits referred to? That's the Holy Spirit. Seven, the number of completion or fullness. God the Father's there. The Holy Spirit's there. And then, of course, verse 5, it's from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The firstborn of the dead. Unlike Domitian, who was the Roman emperor at this time, who viewed himself, he called himself Dominus et Deus. He officially asked himself to be called Dominus et Deus. We know this from Suetonius and Cassius, which means what? Lord and God. As opposed to Domitian being Lord and God, what do we see here? Jesus Christ, Jesus the King, the ruler of the kings on earth. Here comes a beautiful benediction. I love to study benedictions. There are two benedictions here, five and a half. To him now, of the triune God, the book's going to start focusing on Christ. The point of the Bible is to magnify God in Christ. To him who loves us. And has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. This is what Nate was talking about. Kingdom of priests to his God and father. To him, meaning to Christ, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. First benediction. Second benediction. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. What does that remind you of? Does that remind you of a book of the Old Testament? It should. There's all of these allusions back to the Old Testament, allusions to the life and ministry of Jesus, and an allusion to the end of things. The Son of Man coming on the clouds. What does that remind you of, my Bible scholar friends? The book of Daniel. Jesus alluded to this. He said, you will see what? The Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. The book of Daniel talks about the Son of Man coming. Before whom? The Ancient of Days. Look at this. Such an amazing picture of who Christ is. Behold, He is coming with the clouds. This is a sobering thing to think about, my friends. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. May it be so. Verses 8 through 11, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Words cannot convey the significance, the triumph, the majesty of who God is in Jesus Christ. Look at this, verse 9, I, John, your partner, your brother and your partner in tribulation and the kingdom... And the patient endurance that are in Jesus, I was on the isle called Patmos. Like I said, it's off the coast of modern-day Turkey, an island, a penal colony, a concentration camp. He was there, what does it say, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, that there's another king, there's a true king, a sovereign to whom we must give all of our loyalty and fealty. And he was being persecuted. He was being silenced. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That's fascinating, is it not? In the New Covenant, in the book of Acts, in Corinthians, and in other places, when was the church meeting? When did the earliest church begin to meet after the resurrection? On what day? The first day of the week. That's why we're here this morning. John says he was in the Spirit. That means he's in this kind of spiritual visionary state where he's receiving this vision. He's in the spirit, and he heard behind him a loud voice like a trumpet. That voice is going to be the voice of Jesus. If you look down at verse, well, you can't look down to verse 18 because I've hidden that on panel five, and that's coming in just a minute. Anyway, this is Jesus, the angel is giving John a picture, a vision, in the vision Jesus is speaking. Jesus says, write what you see in a book in verse 11 and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Go to panel five, please. I think we're keeping a good pace. We're continuing along. This is very interesting. It's dramatic. You should understand this is dramatic. John is at the end of his life. He may be in his 80s. He perhaps is the last remaining disciple. He's getting this vision. Domitian is the emperor. He was a, he was a very effective Roman emperor from one standpoint. He was very intimidating. To the church on the other. Domitian, who legally wanted himself to be called Lord and God, was making life very difficult for the church. Would the church survive? Would it continue? What's going to happen? The Lord Jesus Christ arrived and helped John understand what would happen. Verse 12 Then I turned. John turns and he, isn't this interesting? He sees the voice. He sees the voice. That was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. If you can stick with me just just a few more minutes. What is that an allusion to? That's an allusion back to the Old Testament in the temple. What was in the holy place? Not the holy of holies, but in the holy place. Was there a lampstand there with seven candles? Yes. And what did that lampstand represent? The light of God. The people of Israel were called to be a kingdom of priests who were to shine their light among the nations. Missions in the Old Testament was centripetal. The nations were to kind of come in and see the light of God in Israel. They were the lampstand. Obviously, who is Jesus? The light of the world. Okay? This represents the church, the churches of John's day. There are seven lampstands seven represents the church as a whole there are lampstands in this vision and Wow in verse 13 there's the church the seven lampstands the fullness of the church shining their light and in the midst of the lampstands there is one one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. What is that reminiscent of? The priesthood. The robe that goes down to the bottom, the golden sash. The Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven is a great priest. Where is he located? Is he beside the church? Is he above the church? Where does the text say, the Son of Man, this exalted priest, where is he? With respect... To the seven lampstands what does it say in the midst of the lampstands the son of man the great high priest this glorious figure is in the midst of his church helping his church caring for her look at verse 14 this is fascinating he's in the midst of the lampstands he's in the midst of his church He's got a long robe, a golden sash. This is hearkening back to Daniel 7, the Son of Man coming. But then, interestingly, it describes him with hair that is white, like like white wool, like snow. Who's that reminiscent of in in Daniel? The Ancient of Days. He's the great high priest with the wisdom and the power of God Almighty. Almighty. That's who is here. Listen to how he's described further. And remember, he's speaking with symbolism. You should try to imagine in your mind's eye what this is like. What does it mean when it says in verse 14, his eyes were like a flame of fire? What do you think that indicates? That means he can see everything. He knows everything, nothing is hidden, nothing escapes his understanding. Look at his feet in verse 15. This is reminiscent of Psalm 110, One. What did God say he would do for his Messiah? I will make your enemies what? A footstool for what? For your feet. I will subject your enemies under your feet. Look at how the feet of the Son of Man are described His feet were like burnished bronze that is the strongest material they had access to it's refined in a furnace it's polished it's strong it's unconquerable his voice like the roar of many waters where is John what does he see on a daily basis the ocean all around him he's giving an analogy what was the tone and the timbre of the voice of the son of man like what does many waters sound like these are approximations his voice has supreme power verse 16 in his right hand he held seven stars we'll find out the seven stars are seven angels maybe maybe angels that are watching over the church the angels that protect the church, he's got them in his hand. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face, this is amazing, was like the sun shining in full strength. Here we have the effulgence of the Shekinah glory: the glory that led the people out of Egypt to the promised land, the glory of God that descended on the temple. What did Jesus look like on the Mount of Transfiguration? What does transfiguration mean? He went through a metamorphosis. Jesus showed and glowed the Shekinah glory. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. The glory of God is there in Christ Jesus. Look at John's response. I cannot imagine a more appropriate response. When I saw him... I fell at his feet as though dead. I don't know if he's saying, I don't know if that's symbolism like like he he passed out, he fainted, or or is he actually dead in a sense because he's seen the glory of God like this? I I don't exactly know. Look at what Jesus does. He lays his right hand, the hand of authority and a power. He laid his right hand on John saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. I have power over the grave by virtue of my death and resurrection. I'm here. I'm sovereign. I'm in control. I am with you. Verse 19, write, therefore, the things that you have seen. He knew that in the future, Providence Presbyterian Church would need to hear these words. Those that are, those that are to take place after this. And then he kind of gives you a little interpretive key. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, total control, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I'll end with this. What hope do we have when only 24% of self-described evangelicals are attending church on a regular basis? What hope do we have for our little church plant with 60 people in the midst of a city of over 250,000 what hope do we have in the midst of a culture that is more and more hostile and oppositional to the gospel? What hope do we have? We have this hope. Jesus will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. It's not only true for the church. It's true for us as individuals. Regardless of what you're going through, whatever diagnosis you've received, whatever struggle that you are having, this God in Jesus is in your midst and we can trust him and we can serve him and if someone walks in that church and tries to do us harm you can give your life for him because to live is Christ and to die is gain, for this amazing one beloved this is what we have in store of us to learn more and more about the Son of God very God, a very God in Christ Jesus and how he loves and cares for his church and how he loves and cares for you. Pray with me. Our gracious God, we don't have time to even scratch the surface to mine the gems, the riches of this text. Father, help us to understand. If we understand nothing else from this sermon and this series, help us to understand the very clear and straightforward message of this book that our triune God wins through the person of Jesus Christ. You win in terms of the big picture. You, lo- you win in terms of the specifics. You win, and you are sovereign in terms of the details of our little lives. Holy Spirit of the living God, through the power of Jesus, the resurrection power of Jesus, bless our church plan in La Paz, in the midst of a spiritually dry and dark place. Bless the words of Benjamin Romero as he preaches Christ. Grow that church. Grow El Buen Pastor. Bless Haziel Cantu and his ministry of Christ. Bless Providence Presbyterian Church as we raise high the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, encourage us like you encouraged John with this image, this picture of Jesus. We pray this in his matchless name, amen and amen.